This podcast is brought to you by JDRF Australia and Sanofi. Hello, I'm Andrew Gagan, and welcome to the T1D Tune-In. T1D used to be known as juvenile diabetes and is often regarded as a disease affecting just children, but they never grow out of it. In this series, we'll hear from adults with type 1 who are leading inspirational lives. We'll also talk to the brilliant researchers working on exciting new treatments and striving to find a cure. In this episode, we meet an Adelaide mental health nurse who uses her diabetes as motivation. She's an epic fundraiser, sending herself challenges most people wouldn't even contemplate, and in the process, raising tens of thousands of dollars for type 1 diabetes research. I was hobbling, hobbling for 40-odd kilometres a day. Um, Most of it spent in tears. My poor mum was on the side of the road driving, just watching me in absolute agony. While she's rarely standing still, we have managed to catch Eliza in a rare moment of downtime to share her story. Eliza Bartlett, welcome to the T1D Tune-In podcast. Thank you very much for having me on. Now, you're just 27 years old, but you've already managed to cram so much into your life. What motivates you? I like to say being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of nine has always been a massive motivator for me to push myself and to prove to other people that having a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes isn't something that's going to hold me back in any any dream or goal that I've ever had. Well, before we get to some of your accomplishments, take us back to the time when you were diagnosed. Do you recall that day? I recall it like it was just yesterday, really. It was not long after my ninth birthday. I was quite young, thought I had the world ahead of me, which which I did. And I just started to have a few symptoms, drinking lots of water, going to the toilet, being really fatigued. And it wasn't until I had a netball game and I had asked for a quarter off and my mum was the coach and that was very unlike me. I hate having any time off a sporting field or court and that was the final straw for mum to take me straight to the GP after the game and it was then that I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Did you understand what that meant? I mean, nine is obviously still a a very young age. Did you and, and your parents understand what it all meant? Not really. I guess as a nine-year-old, you even to this day now, you hear a lot about diabetes in the news and I was instantly thinking that I'd eaten too much sugar because that's the way the media portrays the word diabetes. So I'd cooked honey crackles the day before and I was almost blaming myself for having too much sugar and not being healthy, whereas I was a very athletic, healthy kid and at the time I weighed 21 kilos because I'd lost so much weight for having diabetes. But that was just the way that I guess society sometimes portrays that word. And it was a huge shock because no one in the family had ever lived with type 1 diabetes. So I was the first and it was definitely a massive learning curve at the start. Were the people around you, um, not just family and friends, but the, the broader people you mixed with, were they understanding? Definitely. I was, I'm very lucky to have, well, like you said, not just family and friends, but my school at the time, definitely people with in the diabetes community. I had so much support and I instantly, I was pretty eager to learn everything about it and I did and through that I had the support of everyone uh, to get me through and to live a pretty positive life despite having this diagnosis. Do you 
still deal with misconceptions, do you think? Obviously, back then, people might have said, well, yeah, you got this because you ate too much sugar. Do you still get that? Definitely. I think there's still not enough awareness in the general community about type 1 diabetes. I still get told what I can and can't eat by people that aren't really educated in the area. I get very frustrated. Uh, People continued to tell my parents while I was growing up that they must have fed me too much food as a kid. It's an ongoing battle, but something that I thrive. I, I love educating people and people are often, when you engage in a positive way, they're pretty willing to learn. And that's something that I guess I've made myself quite educated so I can tell these people about what type 1 diabetes really is and hopefully they can learn from and pass on to someone else as well. Now, you obviously love sport. You were telling us that you were playing netball at that, that day that you were diagnosed. Did you ever think that diabetes may stop you from playing sport? I think looking back, that was the first question I asked the doctor at the time. So my first question as a nine-year-old was, can I still play sport? And they said, of course you can. And I thought, well, I'm not only going to play sport, but I'm going to work pretty hard to play at the best level I can. And that was something I've always probably taken to this day now. I take sport very seriously. And I think health, it's having a chronic disease as a young kid it makes you really grow up and focus on your health. And I think sport's a big part of that as well. So Eliza, you told us how seriously you take sport. In fact, you played underage state cricket. Now that's a game where you can spend hour upon hour out in the middle under a hot sun. How challenging is it to play competitive sport and keep your levels under control? It's extremely challenging and it takes a lot of preparation for sure. I was I think one month after I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, I went away on my first underage state cricket trip at the age of nine and I was staying with a family in Darwin or I think it was Cobram Brugger actually my first one and I didn't know them and they had to sort of take on this this child who was newly diagnosed and wasn't completely educated herself. Learning to deal with that at a young age and then taking it onto a cricket field where you might be playing in 40 degree heat and your stress levels go up and down and everything affects your blood sugars, whether it is the weather or stress or exercise, food, all those things come into playing a day of cricket. And you're not out there for an hour at a time. You're sometimes out there seven hours um, in a day standing out in the hot sun. So it's something I've learned to deal with, but still to this day, it's not perfect. It's still a challenge every time I walk out into a field and I just do the best that I can. Yeah, it obviously comes down to planning though, doesn't it? Definitely. As long as I've got the food and I've got, I manage my blood sugars as well as I can. I think my performance can be as good as it can on any given day. I'm pretty, pretty prepared for what could happen, but it still throws the unexpected challenges. So as well as being very active, as a teenager, you would have been dealing with adolescence, of course. How did you manage your levels yeah. at that time? Certainly. I think that's one of the most challenging times with type 1 diabetes is going through puberty and um, all the hormones and everything that comes with it just throws everything out of control. It was a very challenging time and I just made sure I had the support around me of not only my medical team but my family and friends and I got through it. Luckily, touch wood, it was a good time for me. I managed to deal with the stresses of school and growing up and all the, all the things outside of school that can often be stressful in those years and I got through it with relatively, I guess, stress-free and uh, diabetes was well under control at that time. Do you suffer from hypos? Certainly. I think anyone with uh, diabetes has had their fair share, but I did go through a stage 
in my late teens, early 20s that I wasn't waking up from hypos overnight. So often I'd be found by my family unconscious in bed or not turn up to work and have luckily supportive friends or or bosses that would ring my family to make sure I was okay and they would they would find me often unconscious which was really scary for not only me but the entire family uh, making sure that I was alive each morning is something as a 18 20 year old that you don't expect to have that fear every night that you're going to bed and that's something I had to learn to deal with at the time and it was certainly really scary and I was traveling a lot on my own over those years I spent time in places even like Mexico solely on my own traveling as an 18 year old and having those things in the background as well but like I said I had the support around me and thankfully to this day I I don't I now wake up to those hypos and it's not something that worries me as much and the technology is there to support that as well whereas at the time we didn't have CGMs we didn't have that that technology that has a little bit of that safety net. It's still obviously a worry. It doesn't stop you having those hypos, but it, it can alert people, which is a godsend. So Eliza, when you finished school, what did you do? So I took a year off straight after school. I travelled to America and worked at a summer camp before I started uni. So I, I spent six months travelling on my own all around the US, Mexico, I worked at a summer camp and taught riflery, a very American thing, and some really some high ropes courses and quite dangerous activities for kids, but it was an amazing experience. I then came back and got straight into studying nursing, which is something I wanted to do from day one of being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So that was definitely a career path that I would say having diabetes and that interest in health from such a young age sort of has driven my career to this day. Yeah, you're obviously extremely independent and an adventurer at the same time. Now, at 20, you decided to go for a walk, but this wasn't a walk down to the shop. This was more of a, a Forrest Gump type of walk. Tell us what you did. Yeah, so I, it all happened by me waking up one morning and strolling into the kitchen and telling my mum that I wanted to walk to Melbourne as a fundraiser. And instantly I got shut down by everyone. Everyone said, oh, it's a stupid idea. Don't do that. You won't do it. And that's that's what drives me. I'm very competitive. So if someone tells me not to do something, I'll make sure I go out and do it. And I had a lot of support in the end, but I think people tried to talk me out of it. So I took off not long after my 21st birthday. I started walking from the Adelaide Oval and 20 days later I arrived with a lot of injuries, a lot of pain, but arrived at the MCG to watch the Crows play. So the Crows are my AFL team. Uh, unfortunately, they lost on the day, but getting there was a huge achievement and raising, I raised over $25,000 in that walk. So you made every step of pain worthwhile. And where did that money go to? So that went directly to JDRF research. I guess my ultimate goal is to find a cure and for me, ideally, even a prevention as well. Now, your achievement did come at a cost. In fact, you needed surgery after the walk. I did. So I, from day four, I had stress fractures, torn tendons, blisters, about 10 blisters, which were the size of 50-cent coins that needed debridement, I think, on about day eight at a local hospital. I was in a fair bit of pain. 
Didn't get much sleep with just throbbing feet, but I was lucky to see a physio midway through who said, look, you'll make it. You'll be suffering. You'll be in a lot of pain. But if you're determined enough to get there, uh, you won't do lifelong damage. So go for it. So I was I was hobbling, hobbling for 40-odd kilometres a day. Um, most of it spent in tears. My poor mum was on the side of the road driving um, a support vehicle, just watching me in absolute agony. But like I said, it was well worth it and I, I wouldn't take any of that back now. Okay, Eliza, you obviously love to walk because last year you set yourself an even bigger challenge. Tell us what you did. After my first walk, I think everyone around me knew that they had to support me and that I wasn't going to hold back when I came up with a plan. So I had planned to do a six-month walk, which happened to be, in the end, almost 4,300 kilometres across Europe and the UK. So I started in southern Italy in a small little town called Brindisi, and then I walked through the entirety of Italy, Switzerland, France, England, and then finished in northern Scotland. And how much did you raise? I ended up raising just over $80,000, which I was absolutely blown away by the support that I received for that. It was well worth the many days of pain again, and I couldn't have asked for a better outcome, really. My, my goal was around that mark, and to reach it, I was proud of everything I'd done, but also... So happy that people are willing to support me and the cause of JDRF and type 1 diabetes that I'm so passionate about. Now, you did this by yourself. Did you have any support there? Just just tell us some of the, the highs and lows you went through. No, so I, I was entirely on my own. So I took off from Adelaide, flew straight into Brindisi with a couple of stopovers and just set off the next morning. So I think I arrived at 6pm at night there and I set off with a backpack 22 kilos um, on my back, most of which was medical supplies. And I just walked, walked and walked for 170 odd days, getting through, getting some very testing moments, some tough weather. I had to deal with flooding, snow, aggressive animals, people. It was many challenges that I never expected I'd be coming across and not things that you can really plan for being chased by a herd of cows or wild dogs biting your gear and trying to attack you, to people trying to get me in the back of their car as I'm walking along a highway. It was surreal looking back and just knowing the experiences I had gained and as well as making everything so worthwhile. The fact I came out of it safe, it was um, all certainly worthwhile. You told us earlier about that fear of having hypos that, you know, on numerous occasions you'd woke up in a coma. How did that play out when you were by yourself pushing your body to the limit in a foreign place? It was very scary. From the food that I wasn't used to to the amount of activity I was doing, the stress I was under, I was certainly quite concerned with how that would all play out. I couldn't afford continuous glucose monitoring. It's a very expensive thing to have when you're not under 21 or not on a healthcare card. I would have been paying $100 a week or more to have that with me and also just I didn't have room to carry all those supplies. So it was a case of me ensuring people back home knew knew where I was. I had live tracking so people knew exactly where I was as well as messaging people each morning to say, I'm alive, I'm up, I'm walking. Uh, that'd be able to track in case I stopped in the middle of nowhere for an hour or so and no one could get in contact. 
So I had those safety measures in place, but it was it was terrifying. Most of the places I w- was in, people didn't speak English. I was in quite remote little villages at times. I tried to ask for help to try to find accommodation and things, and I couldn't get that help. So I was worried that if I was having a major health issue, there weren't hospitals around. There weren't many medical places or people that could even support me. So it was, a, yeah, a very scary time. Eliza, I know you you don't have a family history of diabetes, but you are concerned about your sister. Why is that? So my sister has been tested for the antibodies, and I believe there's about five five or six antibodies that you can have, and she has, I think, at least five of them. So she has been told that she's practically 100% chance of being diagnosed in the future. She's currently 30, so she's lived most of her life, obviously, to this age and we hope that continues without type 1 but it's something that I'm I'd hate to see someone I love so much be diagnosed I guess she would have the education she'd have the support of the family we're all aware of what it is but it's not something I'd wish on my worst enemy let alone my sister do you have confidence though in what support you do have particularly from technology you spoke about uh, CGMs but obviously that's um that's expensive for many, including yourself. I know you're very interested in diabetes dogs. Tell us about that. Certainly. So I recently was part of a it's part of the news, but I got to go out and visit some little diabetes dogs in training. So support dogs that can wake try to wake you up if you're about to have a hypo. They can react if you're out during the day and your blood sugars are dropping. They can also do things like bring you your hypo treatment. They can ring an ambulance if you're not responsive. That's an absolute game changer as well to have not only someone, a little companion that can support you and feel, make you feel like you're not alone, but they can save your life in the end. And I guess as an 18 to 20-year-old when I wasn't waking up, if I had a little dog waking me up and making sure I went and had that sugar in the middle of the night, that wouldn't be happening to me. So I wouldn't be I wouldn't be going into that, I guess, coma that my family was so concerned about and I I was going to bed each night scared. I would have a lot more confidence that I would be waking up alive and I'd be waking up healthy. So they're a cute little fluffy dog that can be my best mate as well, then what's better than that? Yeah, yeah, you get get the best of both worlds. (laughs) Eliza, what's the future hold? Obviously, COVID has curtailed your walks for now, but do you have another one planned? (laughs) question I get asked a lot so it's a very addictive thing I'm not a walker so I've never enjoyed walking which is a funny thing I guess to say when I've sort of walked 5,000 kilometers for charity but it's something I'll look into in the future but it might not be a walk it might be something completely different I think my feet wouldn't let me do another walk I think at this age I've got other plans and goals with my career and family I'll never stop fundraising or supporting JDRF It's something I'll be doing until there is a cure, but whether that's in the form of walking again, I don't have an answer for now, but we'll see. We never know what the future will hold. Yeah, maybe fundraising of a different sort. I know you did try the 40-hour famine. How did that go? That was very interesting. So that was a couple of months after I first went on an insulin pump. I told the doctor that I didn't have to eat if um, my blood sugar stayed stable and so I thought I'd challenge myself with that. And that that was a challenge. I love my food more so than anything. So it was a challenge, but also something, I guess, again, I wanted to prove to people that 
diabetes isn't going to stop me. So why not go ahead and try it? I can tell you I probably won't try it again. Uh, but again, I'll challenge myself in many ways just to just to prove to people that having this chronic disease of diabetes isn't going to hold me back. Eliza, you often speak at schools educating kids about diabetes and I guess life in general. How rewarding is that? I really enjoy it. I think spreading awareness, and that's not only to do with diabetes, but awareness about other chronic diseases and how people live day-to-day lives without having a an illness that you can see. I don't. It's an invisible illness. I walk down the street and no one would know that everything I have to do in my day just to get out of the house, just to live and feel happy and not unwell. And I think educating people about that, how to, I guess, treat other people and look after themselves and others is something I'll continue to be quite passionate about. I'm a qualified as a diabetes nurse educator, although I work in mental health. So obviously those two areas, something I'm really passionate about and I think I'll continue educating and trying to get the best out of people in those areas. Eliza, it's been fantastic to talk to you and hear your story. Eliza Bartlett, thanks so much for joining the T1D TuneIn podcast. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. If you'd like to find out more about JDRF Australia or get involved with their various initiatives supporting the Australian T1D community, visit their website, jdrf.org.au. For all the latest updates on T1D research, search JDRF Australia on Facebook or follow them on Instagram under at JDRFAUS. And keep an ear out for more episodes in our T1D TuneIn series, wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Until then, I'm Andrew Gagan. Thanks for listening. Views expressed in this podcast are broadcast for informational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice. Consult your team of healthcare professionals for health or personal advice that is right for you.